Section 11 of Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kentucky's Famous Feuds and Tragedies by Charles G. Mutzenberg. Section 11. The Tolliver Martin Logan Vendetta, Part 2. Immediately after the death of Justice Elliott, an election was ordered for his successor, and Judge Harris again became a candidate before the Democratic Convention. A number of able and distinguished jurists opposed him before that body, many of these much older and experienced than he. In spite of the powerful opposition brought to bear against him, Judge Hargis again succeeded in obtaining the nomination, another proof of his political influence as well as of his talents and abilities as a lawyer and politician. This last and most important success of Hargis aroused anew the malign hatred and envy of his numerous enemies in the camps of his own party. The old charges were renewed, remodeled, rehashed, renovated, and added to, as the occasion demanded. The story of his willful, felonious destruction and mutilation of court records was republished and more extensively circulated than ever newspapers circulars handbills and letters telling the story were scattered throughout the district posted up at all public places on fences and trees along the highways thus increasing factional enmity to a dangerous intensity opposed to him in this race was judge holt a Republican politician and lawyer of prominence, and of unassailable purity of character. The contest between these men was waged with spirit with the result that the mantle of Judge Elliot fell upon Judge Hargis. During the canvass, Judge Hargis, through the Courier-Journal and other newspapers, had denounced the person over whose signatures a number of the scandalous accusations and derogatory charges had been made as liars, calumniators, and villains. Thomas M. Green, editor of the Maysville Eagle, also correspondent of the Cincinnati Commercial Gazette, had been most persistent in industriously keeping the disparaging accusations against Hargis in the columns of the Republican press of the country. Editor Green was, in consequence, singled out by Hargis in his card to the Courier-Journal as the chief offender, assailing him in most bitter terms. Green applied to the law for redress and instituted suit for libel in the Jefferson Circuit Court at Louisville, asking for a large sum in damages. Early in the spring of 1880, the case came on for trial. Hargis waived all questions of jurisdiction, which it had been expected he would use as a defense. He somewhat staggered his enemies by admitting responsibility for the article upon which the suit was based, and declaring his ability to prove the charges made against Green as true. The trial lasted for many months. It was minutely reported in the press of the country, and read everywhere. Even now the angel of good fortune did not desert Judge Hargis. He won the case. During this period, 
the controversy between Greene and Hargis had very sharply aligned the friends and enemies in Rowan County. So complete was the breach that the thoughtful ones looked forward to open actual hostilities. Hope of compromise disappeared as time passed. A storm so long brewing is apt to accumulate extraordinary force. A fury long pent up will break loose with greater fierceness. The strife had penetrated every neighborhood, almost every household. Any public occasion, especially the biennial election, was looked forward to with dread. Minor political contests waged in these elections served to open old sores and to inflict new wounds adding material for the spirit of revenge to feed upon. At that time, the Australian ballot system had not yet been introduced. The viva voce system was in vogue, and bribery in elections was, therefore, much more common than it is now. Candidates practically bought their offices. The voter cast his vote publicly. It was recorded publicly, and tried out publicly. In this wise, the buyer of the vote controlled the seller, and very often vote sellers were driven en masse to the polls like so many sheep, a cause of innumerable election fights. Another successful instigator of trouble on election day was the free and promiscuous use of liquor with which candidates treated and influenced the voters. Election contests frequently excite the most staid and conservative citizens, but when whiskey is added, it is certain to arouse passions which might otherwise have slumbered on. Such were conditions in Rowan County on the day of election, August 1884. A hot political race was on between one S. B. Gooden, the Democratic nominee for sheriff of the county, and W. C. Humphrey, commonly known as Cook Humphrey, the Republican nominee. The county being almost equally divided politically, the contest was close. Each of the candidates was wealthy, influential, and extensively related. Money was used without stint. Bar rooms were thrown wide open at Moorhead, the county seat, and principal town of the county, as well as at most other precincts in the county. The town was crowded with excited, angry, drunken men, and all through the day there were fist fights and brawls. During one of these, the prelude to the conflict which afterward attracted the attention of the American press, John Martin, son of Ben Martin, a wealthy farmer, was struck down and seriously injured. He immediately sprang to his feet, drew his pistol, and a general pistol battle followed. When the smoke had cleared away, Solomon Bradley was found dead, Adam Sizemore severely wounded. The death of Bradley, a good citizen who had taken no part in the fighting, and the wounding of Sizemore and Martin proved of fatal consequences. Bradley was one of the most influential Republicans of the county. He and John Martin were members of the best families and extensively related even in adjoining counties. 
the Martins were known to be ambitious and brave men. It appeared that Martin received his wounds at the hands of Floyd Tolliver, a brother of Craig Tolliver, who afterwards attained such unenviable notoriety and bore the distinction of being one of the most cruel, bloodthirsty desperadoes Kentucky ever had the misfortune to own as her son, and whose tragic death on the day of the memorable battle at Moorhead some years later was heralded throughout the country. John C. Day, the then acting sheriff of Rowan County, was charged with the shooting and wounding of Sizemore. The first blood had now been spilt. Moore was bound to follow. Even the most hopeful became convinced that a long and bloody conflict could no longer be averted. Those best acquainted with the state of affairs knew, and rightly predicted, that the law would not be invoked to settle the trouble and punish the offenders. A life for a life was the motto that henceforth governed the factions, now arrayed against each other in open, desperate warfare. The wounding of Martin, by Floyd Tolliver, placed the latter and his friends and relatives in a dangerous position. They knew the Martins would not pass lightly over the matter. Their numbers and influence made them dangerous adversaries. Floyd Tolliver lived at Farmers, a small village on the Licking River, a station of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway, which traverses the county and passes through Moorhead. The Tollivers also were a large family. Floyd, believing himself in danger, now turned to his relatives and friends for assistance. They responded promptly, armed and organized. The Martins, the Sizemores, and the Days did likewise, thus dividing the county into four factions, composed of determined, courageous, and desperate men. During the circuit court following the murder of Bradley, the grand jury returned indictments against John Martin, Floyd Tolliver, and Sheriff John C. Day for malicious shooting and wounding and murder. Bail was granted, bonds were readily executed, and the cases continued until the next term of court. In December, following the fight of August 1884, Floyd Tolliver and John Martin, who had recovered from his wounds, came for the first time face to face outside of the courtroom, and when not in custody of the officers since their fight. They met in a barroom, a place never suitable for enemies to meet. Had both men been duly sober, trouble might have been averted. But, flushed with liquor, the old grudge soon got in its work. A dispute arose, their hands reached for their pistols, the shining weapons flashed for a moment, then belched forth fire and flame. A cry, the dull thud of a falling body. Floyd Tolliver lay prostrate upon the floor, dead. Martin was immediately arrested and conveyed to the county jail. To his friends the killing was a shock. They were fully convinced that Craig Tolliver and the other brothers of Floyd Tolliver would seek summary vengeance. Grave fears were entertained for the safety of John Martin in the old jail. 
rumors of the organization of a large Tolliver mob increased anxiety and apprehension with each fleeting hour. But as much as the Tollivers were feared, and the more they threatened, Martin's friends bravely prepared to protect him at all hazards. Thus the aggressiveness of the Tollivers was counteracted by the bold defiance of the Martins. The county attorney, Mr. Young, was one of the ablest and most fearless Commonwealth lawyers in Kentucky. By his enemies, and they were numerous, he was regarded as wholly unscrupulous. They refused to credit him with even one pure thought or action emanating from a noble impulse. But unbiased investigation of the facts of this matter clearly shows that Mr. Young did his duty in this particular. He was perfectly acquainted with the character of the men arrayed against Martin, and was not the man to be deluded by their repeated declarations that the law would be permitted to take its course. At the risk of antagonizing the Tolliver faction against himself, Mr. Young promptly directed the removal of John Martin to the Clark County Jail at Winchester for safekeeping. County Judge Stewart saw the wisdom of it, and issued the order for the removal, which was accomplished without mishap. As soon as it became known that their intended victim had escaped them, the Tollivers, furious and raging, gathered in large force, spreading terror wherever they appeared. "'We can wait,' they said. "'There is another day coming. John Martin must be brought back to Moorhead for trial, and then—just wait.' December 10, 1884, was the day set for the examining trial before County Judge Stewart at Moorhead. Before that day arrived, the unusual activity of the Tollivers, the ominous collection of all the members and friends of that family, the frequent but secret meetings, had been quietly but nevertheless keenly observed by Judge Stewart. He was convinced that if Martin were brought back to Rowan County at this time of ferment and excitement, he would suffer a violent death at the hands of his enemies, and that any attempt on the part of the officers and friends of the prisoner would precipitate a conflict the magnitude of which could not be foretold. In this opinion, Judge Stewart was sustained by Attorney Young. After a careful investigation of the state of affairs, the court decided on an indefinite postponement of the trial. The order to the jailer of Clark County, directing him to deliver Martin to officers of Rowan County, was suspended on the ninth day of December, but, unfortunately, fateful neglect, the order of suspension was not communicated to the Clark County jailer. The wife of John Martin had been advised of the postponement of the trial, the faithful woman who had already suffered untold anxiety and fear for the safety of her husband felt relieved and hastened to Winchester to inform him of the action of the court of Rowan County. As soon as the Tollivers were informed that the trial would not take place and that, therefore, Martin would remain at Winchester for an indefinite time, they convened in a council of war to discuss plans of campaign. A raid upon the Winchester jail was suggested, but the leaders, 
though desperate and brave enough to have attempted and dared anything, did not believe that such an undertaking would meet with success. They advised strategy instead of force. End of section 11